turn to Acts chapter 19. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to use a blue pew Bible in front of you. Uh, you'll find Acts 19 on uh, page 928. Um, so I have a bold agenda for us uh, this morning. So a lot to cover in a little amount of time. Uh, so we're going to dig right in because uh, this morning we uh, finish our series, um, our four-week series that we've called Blueprint. And it's a series on the vision of Grace Church, and we have spent one week on each of our four distinctives. We have done Christ-centered worship. We have talked about Christ-centered community. Uh, last week, Christ-centered service, and now we conclude with Christ-centered mission. And um, what I often say is that Christ-centered mission is really just the natural outflow of worship, community, and service, right? Those three together should equip us to do mission well, all right? So kind of first question out of the gate, well, what's the mission, right? What's the mission of a church? What's the mission of Grace Church? Um, it's not a mystery that we think we have it unlocked that nobody else does. It clearly uh, comes from Scripture. Uh, out of Matthew 28, when Jesus had the 11 uh, disciples uh, on the top of the mountain before he ascended, and he said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's the mission. He, he tells these 11 and, and all that would come after them in the church, Go be the means through which people come to know Christ. Go be the means through which people come to grow in Christ, right? That's the mission, to know and then to grow. And so everything we do here, like if we were to ask, hey, why do we do that here at Grace Church? About any aspect of our church, there should be a, um, a blueprint for, for a pathway of how everything we do gets pushed towards that mission, Right? Because that's the pattern of scriptures, always pushing God's people toward mission, towards proclaiming Christ, towards making disciples. Okay? So you get to the point where it's not optional for a church. There is no such thing as a non-missional church. Right? Like you may be a good group of friends that gather regularly. Uh, you might be a social club that kind of takes care of your own needs. You might be even a real tight-knit community. But without a mission, you're not a church. And the reason why um, we become convinced in the leadership here, why just laying this out clearly week in and week out is so necessary, is so vital to have a blueprint for mission, is that when we just survey the world we're in, we, we just take a look at the cultural climate we're in, um, there is such a need for clarity and passion within the church. And it is needed all the more with each passing year. So um, I'm reading a book. Um, it is, came out this year. It's called Good Faith. Good Faith. It's written by one of the um, executives of the Barna Research Group. Barna kind of being uh, really the la largest religious-based um, research group in the country. And, and he basically has chapter one kind of laid out. He said, in our secular age... There has become increasingly, especially the last really 10 to 15 years, and with each year it's just growing and growing, there are these two seemingly opposite but equally dangerous views of churches in America. So we said more and more, if you just ask people on the street, hey, how do you view churches in America, you are seeing more and more that they are being considered irrelevant and extremist. Two seemingly opposite things that are equally dangerous. And so on the one side, he says, churches who lack a clear mission will just be seen as irrelevant. So 75% of U.S. adults polled think that you can, just, you can live a good life without being a Christian. 
So it makes Christianity like this board game that's not worth learning. It makes churches, that, uh, groups of people that aren't worth joining. And, and a lot of this, if we're honest, it, it's the fault of the Christian community. Failing to communicate what the point of faith is. What the point of church is. And it's not just to have a good life. It's to trust in Christ to have a fulfilled life. And to then play a part in making disciples. And so uh, people, by and large, are more and more just seeing churches and they're seeing Christians and they're going, eh, like what difference does it make? I can do the game of life better elsewhere. It's by and large irrelevant. The second obstacle that churches face is this growing accusation that Bible-believing churches are extremist. Okay, so that word, which used to only be used from, um, in, in ways that were uh, because of violence or because of actions that were seen as violent, is now being put on people in churches just because they're different. So they're not violent, they're, not, they're just different. So do you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven? Extremist. Do you believe marriage is between one man and one woman? Extremist. Would you commit your life to mission work? Extremist. Do you think believers should openly share their faith? Extremist. And so when it comes to our country today, um, over 40%, 42% of Americans believe that people of faith are part of the problem. And that they cannot be part of the solution of what ails our country. And so all this to say is that people are more than ever skeptical of hard lines and strong convictions. And what has grown is this kind of preference for watered-down tolerance that just kind of shrugs their shoulders at everything and calls it love. And then everything else is bigoted. And so if we're just honest about where we are, like, that's the world we're in. That is the church in 2017. And listen, I'm not saying this as like an us-against-them mentality, right? In fact, many of those perceptions, if we're honest, even about ourselves, like, they're, they're probably earned, like, like due to Christians and churches who have harmed ourselves in the way where we are failed to, uh, to be clear on what our biblical mission is, to be full of truth and love. And so perhaps even some of you are listening this morning and you're like, you know, looking around, you're like, that's what you all just described, like that's kind of how I feel. It's kind of how I feel about church. That, that has been my perception, my growing perception of church. And, and so what do we do in that space, right? If we don't just exist in a vacuum, like what do we do? Like um, uh, perhaps we could just throw our hands up and just like kind of limp along and act like that's not the case. Or we could clarify a mission that is Christ-centered. A mission that is relevant and loving, not irrelevant and extremist. And trust that God will choose to do big things for his own namesake. So that's the point of Blueprint. That's why these last four weeks have been needed. And, and as we close the series today, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 19. And I want us to be encouraged, and I want us to be emboldened by the mission of the church. Because in this passage, we will see a blueprint for Christ-centered mission. And one that I think is stunningly still relevant for us today. So a little background on Acts chapter 19. is it, It's in the city of Ephesus. 
And there's this man named the Apostle Paul. He's the best, really, missionary in the Bible. Like, he just was on three missionary journeys. He just planted churches and then moved on and planted churches in all these big um, cities around the Roman Empire. And he came to Ephesus in Acts 19, and he would stay here for three years. His longest stay in any one place. So all across his journeys that we read all throughout the books of Acts, it is here in this city where he spends the most amount of time. And I think it's because once he saw Ephesus, he recognized how vital it would be to plant a thriving missional church there. Ephesus was the third largest city in the ancient Roman Empire. It is uh, located on the west coast of what was called Asia Minor. Uh, It's modern-day Turkey. It is a port city, beautiful port city, right on the Mediterranean. So we have a picture of what modern-day Ephesus um, looks like. So that's modern-day Ephesus. It's still, you can still go there, okay? I don't think the Apostle Paul rolled up on a cruise ship, all right? But I think, like, you can. So just take advantage, like common grace, all right? But um, that, that, that's Ephesus. You can still go there. If we go to the next slide, you kind of have a map of where it was. And we'll go to the next one that shows Ephesus circled um, right in the heart of the Roman Empire. Um, the largest empire in the world that the world had ever seen up to that time. And so, um, as you can see, um, Ephesus being centrally located, it was not only a port city, it was the cross-section of four major ancient highways. So the Roman Empire uh, was really the, they were innovative in that they built highways. Like, it was the first time they built highways connecting their cities. And and Ephesus stood here at the cross-section of four major highways. And so what does that mean is that Ephesus was bustling. Like, you had merchants and cargo vessels going in and out. You had merchants traveling through and docking there from all over the empire. And it brought together people and goods from all over the world. So it was the third largest city, but it was by far the most multi-ethnic and diverse city in the world. It was this melting pot of people and culture and gods and ideas. And so why I think this should be interesting to us here at Grace is because if you read really any commentator or any historian talking about Ephesus, they will always use New York City as a modern-day parallel. This metropolitan area that is amazing because of its diversity, the center of commerce and culture, it is this beautiful thing. But with all great cities, modern and ancient there always comes with it this dark underbelly. And in Ephesus, there was an abundance of cult-like practices that included a spiritual realm of magic, um, demonic realms that came with it, these sexually deviant norms, and just a real loss of moral restraint. And so we know why when Paul rolls up to Ephesus, he decides, man, I got to stay a while. So what was his blueprint for mission in this church? What was his blueprint for him and these 11 uh, disciples that he had and started with in um, Ephesus? Well, let's go. Acts chapter 19. We're going to start with verses 8 through 10. And he, he being Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. 
This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So blueprint for Christ-centered mission. First, engage with the good news. Engage with the good news. So after starting with this core team, Paul begins going to the synagogue to have conversations with people and be a witness to the good news of, uh, Luke tells us, the kingdom of God. A kingdom that is centered on Jesus Christ. So Jesus himself began this way. His ministry, we read in Mark 1, his launch into public ministry began with this proclamation. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus started with the gospel, this good news. Paul begins with the gospel, and so shall it be that any church that's seeking to fulfill the mission to proclaim the gospel, that they would begin with the good news of Jesus Christ. So, so you might ask, well, what, what's the gospel? What are we supposed to be engaging with? I'm glad you asked. All right, so the gospel is a holy, eternal, triune God created the universe by just speaking it into being. And because of sin, The universe was fractured and separated man from God. Sin just being rebellion against our creator. Sin just being we seek our glory over his and we all fall into it. And this rebellion rightly now creates space. It creates space between God and man and it cannot be made up by our actions. We We cannot live our way to eliminate this space no matter how good we might think we are. And so God, not being able to defy his holiness and look past sin, he steps into that space. By sending his son into the world, Jesus Christ, to take the wrath of the Father in place of those who have sinned against him. The good news is that God made a way when there was no way. The gospel is that he created a pathway for men and women to be back in right standing with God through the life death, and resurrection of the Son. And so whoever would believe in him as Savior, whoever trusts in him with their entire life and commits to follow him will be saved. Like, that is good news. Listen, I mean, regardless of where you stand when you hear that, if that's true, that's worth sharing. Like, if that is true, like, that is worth engaging the world with, that is what the world needs. And so the way to make disciples is not to teach people just how to be good. Not to tell them how to be successful or or what you have to do to be happy. It's to tell people how to be saved. How to be made alive by the blood of Christ. Church, engage with the good news. Second part of the blueprint for Christ-centered mission is to be patient over the long term. So we read, Paul committed himself to sharing the good news. But did you notice the language Luke uses? We're told he persuaded. He reasoned over a long period of time. This wasn't uh, what I would call a drive-by shooting, right? It wasn't a one and done. It was Paul entering day after day, first in the synagogue and then in the town hall, patiently talking with and listening to the same people who have came from all over the world for years. To be bold in sharing your faith does not mean you have to be a jerk about it. 
Like, I, I'm not against kind of roadside street evangelism. I think some people have a gift for that, and God can work in and through that. But by and large, a missional church, I think especially in Bergen County, right, in the suburbs, is going to have to commit to share in the context of long-term relationships. It's going to be invested patiently. It's where we're going to have to do a whole lot of listening before we try and do too much talking. Like asking people questions of their stories, trying to really understand where they're coming from, um, to love them enough, listen, to love them enough to talk with them, not at them. So let me just give you one easy application for us today in the in 2017, okay? This probably means far more face-to-face conversations and far less Facebook rants. Far more listening and conversing and dialogue and far less just railing against the culture. I myself had to learn this concept of, of talking with and not at people early on after I rededicated myself to the Lord my, my junior year in college, right? So I, was, I had this kind of youthful um, angst, this like youthful ambition that just never really manifested itself out in the right way. I, I found early on that, that I had this passion for Christ and passion for, for wanting to be missional, and yet I, I always kind of seemed to be harsh. I, I really lacked empathy or any kind of listening skills. Like, I had the answer, you just need to listen to me. And, and so it's no wonder why it wasn't really fruitful ministry. It's no wonder why I found myself in far too many debates and arguments. So the call for the church is to let us be bold, but let us also be patient and loving and be in this for the long haul. Trusting in the slow work of God giving people space to wrestle, giving people space to ask questions, to know that the Spirit is never too late. The Spirit is never too slow to transform. Third blueprint for Christ-centered mission, expect opposition. Expect opposition. Um, Jesus said before he left, um, listen, the world's going to hate you because the world hated me. Peter, in his letter, said, don't be surprised when you go through various trials as a result of your faith. It, it on some level, should be expected. It doesn't mean we look for it. It doesn't mean we try and pick fights. It doesn't mean we want it. But we shouldn't be surprised by it. Because while some will hear and believe, as Paul experienced in Ephesus, others will hear and they'll be disturbed and they'll be angry and they will lash out. The, the old Puritan saying that I've said before is that uh, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And so the gospel is going to go out and some are going to hear and believe, praise God, and others are going to get angry and hardened and they're going to be frustrated and they're going to lash out. And that happened to Paul. We read in verse 9, some began speaking evil of what they called the way. The, the way was the early name given to this new Jesus movement, right? It was, it was because this group of people was putting forth a whole new way of life, a whole new way of belief and of seeing the world and engaging the world. So they called it the way, and they just disparaged them wherever they could. And so Paul had to move from the synagogue to town hall in order so that he could keep teaching. And so again, we see Paul did not get caught into these drawn-out fights and arguments. He just moved on when he was disparaged. 
Paul had thick enough skin to handle it and a deep enough theology to know he should expect this. And I think this is vitally important for the church today because um, many of us, if we are honest, we are fearful to let our convictions be known because it could put us in a bad light with surrounding culture because we could face opposition as a result of it. And that's terrifying on some level. And so Luke is just laying forth by showing us Paul's story of, 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 of go into this, be bold, be patient, and expect opposition. Again, you don't look for it, but we're not going to deny it, and it's not going to wreck us. God is faithful. He'll pull you through. And this is why community is so important, for we know we each have others, each other's back, right? We have each other's back for encouragement. We have strength to handle it and courage not to fight back. We don't have to give slander in return. We don't have to do Facebook rants about anybody else. We can just move on. It's not going to wreck us. Those are the first three steps. Now let's keep going. Let's read verses 11 through 17. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Fourth blueprint for Christ-centered mission, live out your faith. Live out your faith by loving and serving well, by addressing physical and emotional need where you see it. Paul was primarily committed to sharing the good news, but that is not all he did. He showed a commitment to outwardly addressing need in the world around him. He, he didn't just walk to the synagogue or walk to town hall, um, spread this message of love and mercy and grace and compassion, and then go home. He lived out his faith before a hurting world. Listen, this might be the most important point. Christ-centered mission is not just sharing the gospel. We need to love more. We need to, by our love, show people the gospel. To show people Jesus. So Paul carried out miracles with his apostolic gift of healing. He stepped into the marginal spaces of culture that many others and most others didn't want to go to. He addressed needs. He touched the sick and the unclean. He loved the unlovable. He served the unservable. This marks a church that is living on mission, where the good news that we say is supported by the acts of service that we do. Otherwise, what we say will be rendered hollow. A missional church is holistic. It's looking to be the hands and feet of Jesus that address spiritual, emotional, and physical needs wherever we can. 
And it was done so frequently by Paul that people noticed. Right? So like God's people should be so active in dressing need that people notice. This is not our primary motivation so that others will see us. But it is a result of doing so, that when you live to address physical need, other people in the community should see that. To see that Grace Church loves the community they're in. And did you see what happened with Paul? We read that itinerant Jewish exorcists. Like, that, that, that was a thing back then, apparently. Like, there were itinerant Jewish exorcists. Like, here's my business card. Like, call me, all right? Um, how, um, and we see they, those exorcists saw how successful Paul was, and they were like, man, we want in on that. Like, he's actually doing what we claim we can do. And it leads to the most bizarre story in the Bible. Maybe that's overstatement. A bizarre story in the Bible. Because, remember, he- Ephesus is this hyper-spiritual city. And people often delved in the realm of magic and cultish practices. It was a hotbed for the demonic realm. So much so that there was a market for these guys and their business cards, all right? And, but they weren't successful with their craft because they saw Paul was doing it. And they're like, oh, man, we want in on that. And so they picked up on the fact that Paul kept saying this name Jesus. Paul kept using this name Jesus, and it was working. So they're like, I can do that. I can name Jesus. And so they get together, they get to a point where they actually confront an evil spirit, and it speaks back to them. Yeah, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. Who are you? And, and the spirit-filled man uh, proceeds to beat these guys down to the point where he literally takes their shorts. And like, so part of me is terrified that a spirit knows God's people by name. But another part of me can't help but enjoy what I just read. Like, I don't know if this is right, but I kind of find myself rooting for the evil spirit in this fight. Like, it brought me back to, like, when the Patriots played the Giants in the Super Bowl. Like, I want them both to lose. I can't believe I have to root for one of these teams to win. Like, I I find myself rooting for the evil spirit. Like, yeah, beat them down. Wait, you're an evil spirit. All right, so, like, moving on. I don't have time. I don't have time. But the reality is... People saw Paul. They noticed that he was living out his faith to the point where they're like, I want in on that. I want to do what he does. Who's this Jesus he's, he's talking about? And so we have these four parts of the blueprint for Christ-centered mission from the Apostle Paul and the early church in Ephesus. And it's not an exhaustive list. This isn't everything, but it's one that has some key components. And here's what I love about this passage. is It not only gives you a blueprint, it provides the results. The results of a missionally minded church. Like what's going to happen if we follow this pathway? And this passage shows us the fruit. So let's keep reading. Acts 19, let's read verses 18 to 20. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Two results we're going to finish with. Two results of Christ-centered mission. First, individual transformation. 
individual transformation. The word of the Lord was proclaimed patiently over the long term. Opposition was endured. The church committed themselves to carrying out biblical justice, serving the poor and the sick, seeking to live out their faith. And what came of it after three years in Ephesus? Transformation. People heard and people saw And based upon what they heard and what they saw, God used it to transform them, to lead them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The church grew wide as it grew deep, and many joined the mission of the church. Like, praise God for that. Praise God that he uses his people to reach people, to win souls, to grant eternal life, to join and then be part of what God is doing in the world. Listen, there is power in the name of Jesus Christ. And there is power in the mission of Jesus Christ's body, the church. And so people who were enslaved to the culture of Ephesus were running full speed into darkness, engaged in all kinds of spiritual magic and witchcraft and false idols, now turned by the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, and now they believe. And there's physical evidence of this. They are just burning all their old relics and their books. And we find that the church of Ephesus was having weekly bonfires in the name of Jesus Christ. Setting it ablaze. This is the fruit of Christ-centered mission. Those who were once lost are now found. Those who were blind now can see. Those who were once enslaved by sin are now free in Christ. That's the result we want to pray for. That's the result we want to pour ourselves out for, to see people come to Jesus, to join the church, to serve one another, and then go make a kingdom impact. And so that's what we're going to work for, and that's what we're going to strive for, and we're going to water, and we're going to plant, and we're going to pray, and we're going to water, and we're going to plant, and we're going to pray, and we're going to water, and we're going to plant, and we're going to pray, and we're going to trust that God's going to use it to make it grow. And verse 20 is the glue that ties this whole passage together. And frankly, it ties the whole sermon series together. It is this top of the mountain of Christ-centered mission that ought to encourage, that ought to fuel us. Let me read it again, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Why do I have hope in and for Grace Church? Why am I confident that we can be a beacon of light in this area in a time and a place where things are not looking good for Bible-believing Christians and churches? Because I am confident that the word of the Lord will continue to increase and prevail mightily. People come and go. Empires rise and fall. Cultures fade in and they fade out. But for the past 2,000 years, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's finish this passage, verses 21 to 27. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he stayed himself in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. 
These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have made our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And she may be even disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Finally, result number two of Christ-centered mission. You had first individual transformation, now cultural renewal. We learn that Paul, while fully engaged in Ephesus over three years, still had his heart and his, met, and his mind uh, uh, set on missions work. Do you see that? Uh, verse 25 serves as an outline for the rest of the book of Acts. Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem because he had gathered finances and money from Gentile churches to bring down to the Jerusalem church, which was struggling in poverty. And then he personally wanted to go get to Rome, go get to the capital. And we see an important distinction that is worth noting for us here at Grace Church, that even while locally engaged in Ephesus, he also had a heart for global missions. He wanted to see the global church thrive. He wanted to show unity amongst the church, and that meant local churches supporting global mission work to help brothers and sisters to make disciples to the end of the earth. So, Grace Church, if, if we are following God's purpose for us, we will always have a heart for global missions. And while we do make disciples locally, we also have a hand in partnering and uh, supporting the church globally. Uh, here we do that primarily through partnership with 21 missionary families and agencies that go across the world that is local, regional, and global. And that will always be a commitment of Grace Church is supporting the global church. But then we also see that the result of Christ-centered mission that, see, that sees enough individuals transformed will lead to cultural renewal. And so this is fascinating to me. Okay, a, a silversmith named Demetrius, he starts to freak out. Right, he starts to freak out. Why? Because he's losing business. Like, he would make silver that then would go be used for relics and shrines of this Greek god Artemis, and he made a killing off of it. The temple of Artemis in Ephesus was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a must-see attraction. It was the Taj Mahal of the first century, and it was used for literally everything. Okay, so it was the pagan religious center for animal sacrifices, daily sacrifices that were required, which made our boy Demetrius pretty rich, kept him in business. It was the political center for the city. It was the central credit bank for all of Asia. It was the center of culture and a lot of sexually deviant practices in the city. So in many ways, the temple of Artemis was like the center of the world. And now, after this movement called The Way has come in and taken root, in just three years, business in the temple has taken a hit. Profits have shrunk. The demand for relics, for sacrifices has gone down, and these businessmen are freaking out. Like, how awesome is that? The center of the cultural world is getting taken down by a church that is living out its calling. 
This is the power and hope of Christ-centered mission. It brings cultural renewal to a morally debased world. Like, just think about this today. Like, like what if the church was so effective that it bankrupted businesses that are dependent upon morally debased behavior? What if strip clubs couldn't afford their rent anymore? What if the $9 billion a year porn industry couldn't sustain profits because they weren't getting their clicks anymore? What if the global sex slave, that industry that smuggles 20.9 million women and children every single year was nullified because of such a powerful movement in the church? This is the hope of Christ-centered mission. It is individual transformation. It is cultural renewal. So Grace Church, do we want to play a part in that? Do we want to set out on a course where God can use what little we have to make a massive spirit-led impact in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our cities? So I'm going to stand on the truth that promises the word of the Lord will continue to increase and prevail mightily. And if you want to join me, let's get on the bus because we're about to go. Let's pray.